And we spent a considerable amount of time last week explaining the differences between how Christians and secular scientists view the origins of the world, the creation. The scientists have no regard for the Bible, generally, while we insist upon the truth of the Word of God. What it says is what it means. But, you know, there is one verse on which both Christians and secularists can agree, although in different ways, and that is Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. David wrote there, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the son of man that you care for him. When David looked at the immensity of the universe, he wondered what it was that made man think he was so special. And this is a sentiment to which even and especially atheists can give a hearty amen. The naturalistic, with a capital N, doctrine of origins, both of life, the universe, whatever, it places no inherent value upon man. Lawrence Krauss, a famous physicist, said that we're all made up of the same stuff that makes up the stars. And just because that stardust happens to be in the shape of a human, it does not have any special significance. They look at the fiercely burning suns and the impossible distance between them, the emptiness of space, the mathematical precision of gravity, and they say man is nothing in the grand scheme of things. And if we were to believe, as they do, that the human race emerged only after millions of years of struggle and mutation and death, gradually moving from one species to another, you might ask another question. What is man anyway? If every generation of creature shades imperceptibly from one to the next, then any classification of species is arbitrary. It's useful only for now. What we call human now, a million years ago, was nothing. And in another million years, it's going to be unrecognizable. So not only, according to this line of thinking, is man not cosmically special, he's not even biologically unique. Secular scientists don't believe the Bible, but they would agree with Psalm 8 and say, in the face of the universe and all that is in it, who is man to think that he matters? According to that thinking, there is neither meaning nor purpose in the existence of man. And if you accept that idea, you're told you've got to create your own meaning. Well, But how long can a person, or a society for that matter, keep up that charade? If there's no overarching meaning to life, then we're forced to draw it out of smaller and smaller shreds of experience. And if we're stardust, then we are everything. But if we're everything, then we're also nothing. The anxiety, the depression, and the suicide that follows from people who accept that conclusion, it's... Tragic, but it's unsurprising. But as Christians, we get to move on from Psalm 8, verse 4, to Psalm 8, verse 5. What is man that you are mindful of him? Verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. There's no reason from a natural perspective to conclude that man is anything other than an intelligent ape. But we know that God has created the world with man in mind, that he's crowned us with glory and honor. We did not crawl out of the mud. God handcrafted us out of the dust of the earth. He breathed his life into our nostrils. And to be human, according to the word of God, is to be beloved of God. There is meaning and purpose in humanity, according to the Bible. So today, we will finish the story of creation, finishing up day six, 
Moving on through day seven and focusing especially on the creation of man in the image of God. This lesson is profoundly relevant to our culture today. What is man? Well, we're told in this very passage. So let us read to the end of Genesis chapter 1 from verse 26 down through verse 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the creation of man. In the previous 25 verses, we saw the Lord create by the word of his mouth. He simply said, let there be, and there was. Psalm 33, verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. This is similar to what John said in the first chapter of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. God did not have to fight or labor to create the world. He simply spoke it into existence. But in verse 26, the Lord says something different. Instead of the Hebrew yehi, which means let there be, he said nase, which is let us make. In verse 1, when it says God created the heavens and the earth, you remember, it uses the Hebrew word bara, which means to create out of nothing. But in verse 26, it uses the word asa, which means to do or make, but out of existing materials. God is about to do something different than anything he has done so far. Chapter 2, verse 7 gives us more detail when it says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God spoke the light, the stars, the earth, the seas, every plant and animal. He spoke it into existence by fiat, as we say. But when it came time to create us, the Lord knelt down into the dust and handcrafted the first man. There's another interesting note in that phrase, let us make. Who is the us in let us make? There have been several suggested answers, and they go from really dumb to pretty good. Some people call this the deliberative we. That is, God is simply talking to himself. There's no deeper meaning here. There was no one else to talk to, so God just spoke to himself. Others call this the plural of majesty. It's kind of like the royal we. And they say, well, in Hebrew, maybe when you use the plural, it could add significance to a single person. Still others say, well, God's talking to creation. That's probably the dumbest answer. He's talking to the earth and saying, let's make man in our image. I don't get how that works. I don't think there's much merit to those other views either. There's really only two that are worth your time. The first 
is that God is speaking to his heavenly court. You could say the myriad of angels that are in attendance around God. We know that God does have a heavenly court of angels, and we do know that they were in observation as God created. In Job 38, verse 7, it says that when God laid the foundations of the earth, the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. These are references to angels. You remember in the book of Revelation that John said he saw thousands upon thousands and myriads upon myriads of angels in heaven giving glory to God. So, folks will say, when the Lord is saying, let us make man, he's referring to the crowd of angels that's watching. Well, I'd call that half right, because I find it very unlikely that God would include angels in his decision to create man in his image. It does not mean that angels were not watching. It seems very clear from Job that they were, but I think there's something deeper going on here. What we have is an implicit reference to plurality within God. That is, this is the Trinity speaking within himself. Now, it's not plainly spelled out here. This is another example of Old Testament language leaving room for the later revelation of the Trinity. We've already seen back in verse 2, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters. And we understand that the Word of God is also a reference to Jesus Christ, according to John. So you've got all three persons of the Godhead at work in this chapter. Now, Moses may not have understood it when he wrote it down, but the Holy Spirit was carrying him along to write beyond his own understanding. So here you have the triune God making man out of the dust and forming him by hand. I find that so cool. That everything is, let there be, let there be, let there be. And then he just kneels down into the dust. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come together to give life to their greatest creation. Already, you can see, man is distinct from every other creature. He's given special care and attention by God. And not only that, but he's made in God's own image. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. What does that mean? <laughs> That's obviously a phrase with a ton of significance. It's thrown around a lot. But what does it mean? The imago dei, as it's called in Latin. There's a wealth of theology bound up in that little phrase, as we will see. We're only going to be able to get into some of it tonight. But first of all, let's break down these terms. The, the Lord revealed himself through words, so we've got to know what the words are. You have the Hebrew word tselem, which means image, and demun, which means likeness. Now, in Hebrew, there is no and between these two words. So we don't want to press these too far as two distinct things. Some have taught that the image of God is who we are on the inside. The likeness of God is what we do on the outside. But the grammar in Hebrew indicates that they're referring to the same idea, which we call the image of God. And that word tselem, or image, most often in scripture, believe it or not, is referring to a graven image or an idol. It's a representation of something else. God told the children of Israel, do not make a tselem of me. And among other reasons, we know because God had already created something in his image, and that was man. And the word demun is likeness. It refers to a comparison. Often you'll see that word used to be like this, or like that, or it's not as this or as that. And the clearest picture we get of, of what these two words mean together is in Genesis 5.3, where it says, When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, Demun, after his own image, Selem, and named him Seth. 
So to be in the image of someone or something is to be like them, to be a representation of them, like a son or a daughter. So for us to be in the image of God is for us to be like God. We carry his likeness in the world, both in the way that we're made and in the role that we've been given on the earth. This does not, hear me on this because this is a pet peeve of Tyler's, this does not give credence to a strange New Age idea about the God within. I've heard people use the phrase divine spark to describe what Christians believe the image of God means. We all have that divine spark within us. No, <laughs> that is not what this means. You are not God. You do not have God as part of you. You are separate from God. You were made by him, but you are not him. That is a very Gnostic idea, a very Eastern mysticism, that kind of idea, New Age. There's even some secularists that want to try and appropriate that idea, going back to what Lawrence Krauss said about stardust earlier. No, we are different from God. We are made in his image, but we are not God. So I don't like that phrase, divine spark. It's not a biblical one. It's actually a Gnostic one, and that was declared to be heresy a long time ago. So leave that one alone. Seth was the son of Adam in his image and likeness, but he was not Adam. All right? The image of God is what separates us from the beasts and makes us like God. So it's difficult for that reason, because it's such a profound thing, to give a definitive list of what it means to be in the image of God. If you try to define it too closely, you start to leave things out, I've found. So I'm not going to try to be exhaustive. I started making a list, and it got really long, so... Instead, I decided to go with the categories <laughs> that that list fell into. So let me give you five ways here, if you're taking notes. Five ways in which we understand the image of God within us. And I think just about any other definition you want to bring can fall under one of these categories. So I think they'll be helpful. The first aspect of the image of God in man is consciousness. Consciousness. That is, man is self-aware and intelligent. God is self-referential, right? God can think about and talk about himself. We are the same way. That's different from an animal. An animal does not ponder its own existence. It lives and it acts according to instinct, according to outward stimuli, right? Now, we have instincts that are from the Lord, but unlike animals, we are able to examine our instincts and even to override them. There's an aspect of intelligence here, too. Man has an incredible capacity to learn and to understand. And you can talk about intelligent animals all you want, like killer whales is the one that's always thrown out there. The way that they coordinate their attacks or they can communicate with each other. Remarkable precision in that. But the intelligence of a killer whale is nothing compared to the intelligence of a human. If you're comparing it to penguins or something, okay, maybe whales are smarter than penguins, but they're not even close to humans. A whale might know it's in pain, but a human knows why he's in pain and comes up with a rational response about how to deal with it. Scientists consider consciousness to be one of the greatest mysteries of the universe. They have no explanation for it. But it was God who made us conscious, living souls. The second aspect of the image of God is morality, or maybe moral capacity, you could put that. Man has the ability to make moral choices and therefore is accountable to God for those choices. Animals are not that way. When a wolf separates a baby caribou from the herd and tears it to pieces, it's not doing anything evil. 
It's acting according to its own internal drives. God has placed man on a higher level, though, that of the will. For a man to slaughter a child is not just violent, it is evil. There's a difference there. there. There's an extension of sorts here from the intelligence of man because we are able to envision countless alternatives, aren't we? We look at a situation, we can do different things. And God holds us responsible to make righteous choices to do otherwise, and that is what we call sin. Now, at this point, Adam had not sinned. The imaginations of his heart were innocent, we're going to see that he's going to gain the knowledge of good and evil later on. But even now, all the time, the capacity for moral decision was in him. God is righteous, and so he created people who could act righteously or not. There's a lot of dignity to that. There's a lot of responsibility that comes along with it, too. Closely tied to that one is the third aspect here. The third aspect of the image of God is spirituality. God is a spirit, and there's a whole other world in the spirit which is not visible or sensible to us directly. But man was created with the ability to engage in that world as a participant both of spirit and of flesh. This is how you can know God. You can hear his voice. You can know his will because the Lord has made you with the ability to do that. And not only that, but the spiritual side of man is how we can have relationships at all. Dogs do not have relationships. Dogs have loyalty within their pack. But we are capable of deep love in our very spirit. We have the unique ability to recognize another person, to know that they are not us, but that they are just like us within themselves. They also possess the image of God. And you should make no mistake, that is a spiritual thing. God himself is a trinity of persons. God is an active relationship of love. The capacity to know and be known by another person is a distinctly spiritual thing. Our relationships with one another are the likeness of the love within the trinity. So that's number three. Number four, the fourth aspect of the image of God is what I'll call ability. Ability. And I admit this is sort of a catch-all category. <laughs> Because as I said, it is very difficult to pinpoint exactly what the image of God is at work. And so we're going to put a lot of these things under this category of ability. God did not just create us to be. God created us to do. God sent Adam and Eve out into the world, not just to float around in some ecstatic state, but to make something of the life they'd been given. Here's the world. Get after it, guys. When God made man in his image, he made him to be creative and industrious, and adventurous, and romantic, and determined. Look at what man has been able to make of the world that God created. I mean, consider the, the skyline of a city like New York, or London, or wherever. It's amazing. What animal could produce anything even close to that? Or you consider the, the complexity and the beauty of the music of Beethoven, or Handel, or whoever. No animal could make that. You talk about the beautiful bird songs in the air. Yes, they're beautiful, but it's nothing compared to the Messiah, right? Handel's Messiah, for example. Or the profundity of a great novelist like Dostoevsky. The strength and the speed of an athlete. The calculations of a scientist. The skill of an artist. All of that is the image of God at work. It's a reflection of the image of God in man. We are the most magnificent thing that God has ever made. 
And that, in large measure, is why he made us in the first place. He created a playground for us and said, have fun. Go for it. Make something. And that's related to the fifth aspect of the image of God here, which is dominion. That's the role that God has given us over creation. We're going to discuss this in more detail in just a few moments. But you see it in verse 26, verse 28. He says, let them have dominion. We're not only like God in our nature, but in our purpose as well. So there are five things, five aspects to the image of God that will get you thinking. And you can consider more from that, but this is where we're going to be today. Number one, consciousness. Number two, morality or moral decision making. Number three, spirituality. Number four, ability. And number five, dominion. Good list, I think but probably limited because the Bible never straight comes out and lays it out. This is what it means to be in the image of God. At its most basic level, it means God has made us like him. It's not that we look like him. It's not that we're his favorites even. It's that the fundamental makeup of man separates us from the beasts and from the inanimate world. Now here's the question. When Adam sinned, did we lose the image of God? This has been taught by many pastors, but I think they are very, very wrong. Even after the fall, every person on earth, male and female, retains the image of God. And I think this is very easy to demonstrate biblically. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, when Noah comes out of the ark, the Lord said to him, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. James, speaking of the tongue, says, with it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. That's James 3.9. So the Bible grounds ethical instruction, Old and New Testament, in the fact that every man is made in the image of God. It was not lost at the fall. That said, there was something lost at the fall. We still retain the image of God, but that image has been marred by sin. Man has been ravaged by the effects of his own wickedness until, in some cases, all the splendor of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, it's unrecognizable. Romans 1.28 says that since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. When man abandons God and is left to his own devices, he makes a beast out of himself. That's the tragedy of sin. We even refer to people who act certain ways as animals, right? Just a bunch of animals, come on. Because we know we're better than that. We're not supposed to be like that. But it happens. That's the tragedy of sin, as I said. But the Lord looks past all of that. In his love, he sees the man or the woman underneath all of that that he made with his own two hands in his own image. And he said, because I created them in my image, they are worth saving. That's why God sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the Colossians that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus Christ shows us what man was intended to be apart from sin. As God made man, he lives out the image of God in its fullness. He shows us how we are to be. Jesus is what it was supposed to be like. And by his redemptive work on the cross, he's made it possible for us to be restored to what God intended us to be at creation. 
Romans 8.29 says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We reclaim the image of God in a way by becoming more like Jesus Christ. You want to know what it means to live in the image of God? Live like Jesus. So this is what it tells us. We were made in God's image. The image is marred but not lost. And through the power of Christ, we are able to live as he did in the fullness of God's image. And someday, we're going to be glorified with him in heaven. And even that stain of sin is going to be removed. This is also why, a little rabbit trail here, when we get to heaven, it's not just going to be floating around in the clouds and strumming a harp like Daffy Duck, right? Heaven is going to be a place where we wait until the Lord returns to earth. And then Revelation tells us God is going to roll up this earth and make a new one. And then he's going to do the same thing he did in the first one. Go out there and make something. So eternity is going to be the good part of the story. We're living in the prologue, and the rest of eternity is going to be living out the image of God, the reclaimed, redeemed image of God in a new heaven and a new earth. Very cool. In the meantime, though, we have a job to do. And we see it here in this passage. Twice, the Lord says that man is to have dominion over all creation. If the image of God gives us meaning, the mandate of dominion gives us purpose. Let's look closer at what this means here. In verse 28, God blesses the man and the woman and tells them first, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is, of course, a reference to childbearing. It's God's command to mankind to take possession of what I've made for you. We'll look at this in more detail next week. All that's relevant for us now is what he intends them to do once they've filled the whole earth. They are first to subdue it. This is the Hebrew word kavash. It means literally to tread underfoot. You know those flags that say, don't tread on me? The Lord says, get out there and tread on that. <laughs> it, it's used in the Old Testament to mean dominate or subjugate. It even means to conquer. Now, some people have taken the fact that the Lord used this word to say, well, what this means is God was not in control of the whole earth at this point. That seems to be stretching the text. All he's saying is go out into the world and take possession of it. Assert your claim over the earth and its creatures. There's no need to assume an adversary here. Some people want to get really fancy with the doctrine of Satan here and say that Satan was in control of everything. That's not what it says. And in a second, God's going to say the world he made was very good. So I'm uh, not inclined to believe that part. And the key command here is to have dominion. In the Hebrew, that is radah. So he says, go out and have dominion. He says, go out and radah. That word simply means to rule. Go out and rule over the world. God's telling Adam and Eve, fill the world, assert your control over it, and then rule over it. We are the caretakers of God's world. He made this magnificent planet with its mountains and its seas and its swamps and its plains so that we could go out and live in it. He gave us the ability to do amazing things and he sent us out to go do them. There's an important mandate here. Go rule over the creatures that I've made. In, in a sense, this is our world. God made it for us. We are to have dominion over the earth. But at the fall of man in chapter 3, which we're going to read in a few weeks, sin entered in and the world was cursed. 
The animals became wild, the ground became resistant, and I think it's reasonable to assume that the weather became chaotic and unpredictable. The job of ruling over the world and its critters has become much more difficult as a result of sin. And yet, we are still expected to do the job. And largely, we have. The planet is full of people. It's certainly not ruled over by lions or porpoises or whatever. And we've obeyed that command, multiply and fill the earth. But what is different now, because of sin, is that man no longer sees the earth as a garden to be tended. Really, it's more like a mine to be emptied and stripped and ruined. The Lord gave us dominion over the earth, dominion over the creatures, but I think we have become, in a lot of ways, abusers of the Lord's splendid creation. I think it's very clear that man, in many ways, has lost his reverence for the world that God made. We've become enamored with our own creation. We've turned our hand to strip the world of its beauty, to plunder its treasures, so that we can erect ugly monuments to ourselves. I do not believe the Lord would be pleased with many of the things that we've done with his world. Now, let's be real. Myself included, most of us in here are not overly concerned with environmental issues. And depending on your political persuasion, you can actually be opposed to people who have voiced concerns about natural resources or pollution or endangered species or what have you. And I'm the first one to raise my hand and say, me, I'm not very concerned about those things. <laughs> but let's leave aside the excesses of certain people for a moment, okay? Because it's very easy to point that out. Let's leave that aside. Let's just look at the Bible. As those who understand that we have been given authority over God's earth, shouldn't we take good care of our dominion? Brothers and sisters, it is no Christian virtue to abuse an animal or to systematically destroy the grand forests and the mountains that God has made. I don't have a single specific suggestion to make today. But isn't it tragic when you see the jungle being plowed under to make room for a shopping mall? Or when you see the empty plains of the West and there used to be millions and millions of buffalo roaming over those plains and they're gone. Where'd they go? We killed them all. I believe there's a biblical balance somewhere in there to maintain between the civilization of man, which the Bible also calls a good thing, and the natural world, which is obviously a good thing. We don't get just to shrug our shoulders on this kind of thing. But I hasten to add that it is a greater evil to try to subjugate man to the earth rather than to exercise biblical dominion. It is frightening to me to listen to some of these environmental activists who talk about humanity as a plague on the earth. I think that is as close to a demonic worldview as I could imagine. I'm not saying those people are demon-possessed. Please don't think that. I'm saying the idea that man is just a problem, we need to get rid of them, they, there's too many of us, that's not godly. We see the same people who are so vociferous in their defense of panda bears and kangaroo rats. They are equally loud in their celebration of abortion. In Romans 1, again, it says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Do you see the opposite excesses of which we're capable as fallen people? We can be way over here and that's wrong. We can be way over here and that's wrong. And we can turn around and point at them and say, since I'm not them, I'm okay. No, <laughs> that's not how we judge things. We judge things based on what God has told us to do. And you know, this is why the Son of God came. Because Jesus had to show us what it's like to carry the image of God in the world. 
He gave us a new kind of dominion to exercise, didn't he? There's a whole world of interesting meditation to get into on the similarities between the Great Commission and what the Lord says here to Adam and Eve. Jesus sent us out to the whole world. Fill the world. Announce the coming of the kingdom of God. Bring the message of salvation to my creation. We don't have to live in one extreme or the other. There's good news in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. As Christians, we too are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it under the lordship of Christ until he comes and asserts his dominion over all the world someday. Isn't that cool? So we've been made in the image of God and we've been sent out to exercise dominion over the earth. Now in verses 29 and 30, we see one more interesting point that I'd like to make and I think it helps tie the whole discussion together. And then we'll move on to day seven in chapter two. In these verses, Lord tells Adam and Eve, although of course we haven't learned their names yet. We'll learn those in chapter two. In verse 29, he says, I've given you every plant and every fruit on the earth for food. In verse 30, he tells them the same thing is true for every animal he's made. According to the Bible, before the fall of man, and in fact before the flood in Noah's day, Every animal and every human was a vegetarian by the order of God. If you are going to try and cram evolutionary theory into the book of Genesis, this is another huge hurdle you've got to get over. Because the fossil record is filled with fish eating other fish, dinosaurs eating other dinosaurs, but according to the Bible, none of that happened until after the fall. And some scientists want to come in and poke fun at Christians and say, Look at the tiger and the teeth that he's got, or the T-Rex and the teeth he's got. So you're telling me that God never intended them to eat meat? First of all, there are plenty of animals with sharp teeth that only eat plants. And second of all, I see no reason why the curse on the earth could not have altered the biology of these animals, whether directly through God's intervention or naturally over time as the curse and the wickedness of the earth spread. I think it's really a foolish objection because we're talking about the time before time when everything was lovely, everything was new. To try to compare that to now is, is foolish. We talked about that last time. There was no death and there were no carnivores until after sin. But before sin, there was none of that. And according to Isaiah 11 verse 7, when the Lord comes in glory, it's going to be that way again. And it says that the lion will eat hay like an ox. Pretty cool to think about. Well, what do we learn from all this? Scientists consider plants to be living things, as opposed to, say, rocks, right? Rocks are obviously not alive in the same way that plants are, or fish or people. But we make a mistake if we are like the pantheists and we say that all life is the same, and you're no different from a flower or a tree. It's all alive. The Bible makes it clear that fruits and vegetables were given to man for food. And later on in Genesis 9, verse 3, the Lord gives every moving thing that lives to be food for man. What's the point? Man is different from plants and animals. Man is higher than they are. Man is special. God made us not as another animal on the earth, but in his own image to be like him and to rule over the world he's made. There is value and dignity in being human. Psalm 8 says that God has crowned us with glory and honor. He made us special and he loves us very much. VeggieTales told us that, right? We don't need to entertain foolish questions. What does it really mean to be human? Can animals be considered human? What about artificial intelligence? We know what a human is. God told us. 
The psalmist said of the Lord in Psalm 139, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Isn't it odd that we live in a time where rather than talking about the fallen nature of man, we've got to come in and say, no, we're not just animals. The Lord has made you more than that. It all swings back and forth. We've got to stay right on what the scripture says. And in verse 31, God saw not just that the world was good, as he'd said before, but that it was very good. Now that there's people here, the Lord said it's very good. And that brings us to the end of the sixth day. So let's now turn to the second chapter of Genesis. We'll read the first three verses to see what happened on day seven. Thus the heaven and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So now we've come to the end of the beginning. God has created the world, he's filled it, he's set it in motion, and he's given his special creation charge over all of it. God did no work on the seventh day, but he rested from all his labors. By this, you should not conclude that God became tired. He cannot become tired. Instead, the Lord did this as an example to us. The Lord blessed the seventh day by making it holy. That, that word means he set it apart. That's what holy means, set apart. It's distinct from other days. From this passage will come all of the Bible's instructions regarding the Sabbath day. And I come back to it again. If you believe that this passage is merely poetic, that the days of creation are meaningless in real terms, then you have to also conclude that God founded moral instruction upon a lie. Someone might claim, well, it's just a symbol. We know that numbers don't mean anything. Well, that's an assumption that has no bearing in Scripture. God seems to set rather high regard by certain numbers, like 7 or 40 or 12, and I do not pretend to understand it. <laughs> but it's certainly not something just to be dismissed in order to accommodate some scientific discovery or other. In any case, God sanctified the seventh day. He did not yet assign any purpose to it other than rest. But there would be no shortage in the Bible of speculation and contention over the Sabbath day. And unfortunately, it continues even to this day. We do not hear about this seventh day thing again until we reach Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. The fourth commandment God gave to Moses, you know it, was this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Exodus 20 verses 8 through 11. So this is the implementation of the Hebrew Shabbat which is transliterated to be Sabbath. It just means rest. The Lord commanded Israel to keep the Sabbath. They were not permitted to gather manna on the seventh day. They had to gather extra on the sixth day. And the penalties were severe. <laughs> One man was found gathering sticks on the Sabbath day, and we get the idea this was the first guy that decided to test out the Sabbath, and he was put to death immediately. And the Sabbath not only was for the end of the week, there were Sabbath years as well. Every seventh year, they were to let the land lie fallow so that they wouldn't deplete the soil. 
Another one of those things that had not been discovered yet, but the Lord knew what he was doing. And also, every 49th year, so the seventh seven, <laughs> there was to be what was called the year of Jubilee. It would be full of celebration and rest. Debts would be forgiven. Slaves would be freed. Everyone's land that they had sold would revert back to them. And in fact, the Lord took this so seriously, this was the reason that he sent them into exile for 70 years. According to 2 Chronicles 36, the Lord said, I'm going to let my land rest for 70 years because they had missed 70 Sabbath years. And so the Lord said, I'm going to make you leave the land alone. You can understand, therefore, why when the Jews returned from exile, they became rather rigid about their observance of the Sabbath. We're not doing that again. Nehemiah, for example, you read it in the book, he threatened to beat up certain merchants who were trying to sell their wares in Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And during the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, there was a sprawling system of traditions that sprung up around the law, especially the Sabbath. And by the time Jesus was born, keeping the Sabbath was such a chore that people were afraid to even scoot back in their chairs for fear that they might plow the ground with the legs of the chair. And the Pharisees, as we know, were the chief proponents of these rules. And for them, it was not just a spiritual thing, but it was a way of maintaining their own culture in the midst of Roman oppression. And uh, Jesus seemed to get a special delight out of breaking the Pharisees' rules about the Sabbath. He plucked heads of grain on the Sabbath. He commanded a man to carry his bed on the Sabbath. And he healed on the Sabbath in direct defiance of these people. One day in the synagogue, it was the Sabbath, he healed a woman with a crippled back. But the ruler of the synagogue, it says, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? That's Luke 13, if you want to go read that story. Can you imagine being indignant about somebody being healed? A cripple being healed after 18 years. And then you say, I've got an announcement to make. Uh, don't get healed on the Sabbath. Jesus, you hypocrites. These Sabbath regulations had gotten out of hand. And so Jesus brings it back to what God always intended it to be, a day of rest, not regulations. In Acts 15, the church decided to put no burden on the Gentile Christians concerning the Sabbath day. And Paul wrote in Colossians 2.16, and maybe you need to hear this because there's a lot of weird stuff out there. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul said, don't let anybody put a trip on you about the Sabbath day. Throughout church history, there have always been people trying to do that. There were even laws in England and America for a time that you couldn't do certain things on Sunday, because that's the Sabbath day, and you could go to jail it's like you're doing exactly what the Pharisees did in the name of Jesus. Come on, guys. The Lord rested on the Sabbath day and commanded us to do the same, but there's no need to make it more complicated than that. Jesus explained in Mark 2, 27, why the Lord implemented the Sabbath in the first place. 
He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was intended to be a blessing. It was a day off. It's not that complicated. So then do we have to keep the Sabbath today? Well, not if by that you mean a new batch of rules to keep. There are always those who want to bring the church into bondage. There's one group known as the Hebrew Roots Movement. Stay away from these people. They insist upon the Sabbath as necessary for salvation. That's the definition of a heretic right there. And yet even these people don't understand what the Sabbath was. So what do you mean, keep the Sabbath? Well, you have to worship on Saturday, not Sunday. To which I always say, well, we have church on Wednesday nights too. Is that okay? The Sabbath was not even given as a day of worship. Do you see that? It was a day of rest. And they say, well, it says he made it holy. Yeah, holy means set apart, different from other days. In Jesus' day, they went to synagogue on the Sabbath, but read your Old Testament. That was never mandated. It's certainly not mandated in Genesis, which is where all the commands about the Sabbath go back to. This is just another attempt to make salvation a matter of works rather than grace. If you want to worship on Saturday, knock yourself out, but don't think that you've got some sort of edge over me in salvation because of it. The Sabbath is a gift, not a curse. God sent us out to work. But you know what? We work too hard. We can become slaves to the grindstone, unable to take a break, filling every minute of the day with extra labor. Once again, I'm pointing the finger right at myself. That is not good. And God never intended it to be that way. When we live like that, work becomes an addiction and it becomes an idol. And you know what? The Lord knew that about us. And so he commanded us to take a break. Every seventh day. With Israel, he made it illegal to keep working. Because he knows that sometimes in order to bless us, he has to make the blessings mandatory. If you ever work in a place where they do not require you to be in at certain times, they do not require you to take certain days off, you get two kinds of people. You get the people that abuse that and they never work. But then you've got people like me who end up working more at that job than at the one where they make you go home. So the Lord's like, uh, no, under pain of death, you have to take a break every seventh day. <laughs> God commanded us to take time to rest and, yes, to take time to worship, too. We live in a society with two days off at the end of the week, usually. But be honest with yourself, you tend to fill up that day with work, too. You just don't get paid for it. So a Christian does not have to keep the Sabbath as a formal ritual. But a Christian does have to keep the Sabbath as an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty because God made the world and said, I want you to take a break on the seventh day. Yes, sir. And also an acknowledgement of his wisdom. He knew what he was doing, didn't he? You, Christian, need to take a Sabbath. And this might look different for different people. If you work every Saturday, you've got to pick a different day. Are we allowed to do that? Yes, you are. Pick a different day for your rest. Sundays, for me, are not a day of rest. They are a work day for Tyler. But you have to take one. And one person's work might not be work for somebody else. If you're a landscaper, you probably don't want to work in the yard on your day off. When I was working for 1-800-GOT-JUNK, that was the last thing I wanted to do is come home and mow the lawn. But if you work at a desk, you might love getting your hands dirty every weekend. Oh, I can't wait to get outside and mow the lawn, right? Whatever it is, take a break and do not feel guilty about it. We are slaves to the idea of productivity and efficiency, aren't we? 
I, I can't even take a break. I'll have a whole day. I didn't do anything today. I wasted this day. And God's like, no, that's what a break is. You don't do anything. It's called rest, and it actually is a good thing. You are doing something. You're recharging yourself. Any of you have ever managed somebody, you've ever been part of a team, you ever tell an employee or a volunteer or somebody, go home? No, you can't come in today. You have to go and take a break. Sometimes we've got to do that. You need to enjoy the life that God has given to you. You've got to live it a little bit, not just be working all the time. Don't spend it all with your nose pressed to a computer screen or whatever it is you do for a living. If a rest every seven days was good enough for God, then it should be good enough for all of us, right? And as we come to a close here, I want to read the words from the author of Hebrews talking about the Sabbath rest. He spends a long time using the Sabbath as a metaphor for salvation. It's beautiful. You should go read it. But in Hebrews 4, I'm just going to read verses 9 and 10. He says this, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. He takes that simple concept of rest and makes it a metaphor for salvation. In that light, you see another layer of profundity to what God was doing here in Genesis. We were, all of us, created in the glorious image of God. We were made like him with dominion over the world. And yet we've chosen to serve ourselves falling into disgrace and sin. And now what should have been a labor of love and joy has turned into a lifetime of drudgery and pain. But the Lord sent his only son, Jesus Christ, the very image of God, to die in our place and redeem us from the curse of sin with the hope of heaven waiting at the end of this life. And Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Who are we? What is man really? Why should we think that we matter or that have any purpose in our short, miserable lives? Because we did not crawl out of the chaos somewhere. God himself hand-fashioned us in his own image and crowned us with glory and honor. It is a joy and a blessing to be human. And there is a greater joy and a greater rest still to be found in the man Christ Jesus.